you know, just because somebody, you know, when they're coming from a professional criminal gangland background, just because they're able to play the game doesn't mean that they're they're allowed in then to the to the open prison system. Because don't forget, that's going to put other prisoners at risk as well. There's no comparison between, you know, the vast majority of prisoners who are in the prison system and, you know, active gangland criminals like Johnny Mangan. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's the gangland heavyweight serving time for drugs and weapons offences and who was once named in court as the Triggerman in the murder of mob boss Martin Marlowe Highland. But prisoner Johnny Mangan is on the run after escaping from the low-security Lochan House prison where he's been moved after a parole board deemed him low-risk. In a huge embarrassment for the Irish Prison Service, it has emerged that Mangan was using a mobile phone in his cell to make threats to a Dublin family in the run-up to his escape, claiming he was owed money for drugs. Today, I'm talking to journalist Eamon Dillon about the extraordinary series of events that has turned a focus on gangland criminals being housed in open jails where they can come and go as they please, and which has left the shocking question of where is Johnny Mangan? This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Eamon, even with all the prison stories we handle and the various escapees and all the prisoners that get out for Christmas release and they don't go back and we get the figures on those, this Johnny Mangan story just stands out. It is quite extraordinary what has happened over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about somebody who has a pretty hardcore gangland history. I mean, he's in prison for, uh, you know, a huge amount of drugs for cannabis, two million quid's worth of cannabis as well as serving time for having a, a handgun and ammunition. Uh, he was connected, with, you know, with, I guess, some of the bloodiest episodes of, of Irish gangland history. Uh, and, you know, it was obviously he was considered suitable for a transfer to Lock and House, which is in County Cavan, which is one of the one of the kind of two open prisons in the country that's seen as a step-down facility for long-term prisoners who are coming towards the end of the sentence. Now, he was due out in 2024, so he was coming towards the end of a, a significant sentence, which I think he got in 2009. So he'd been in prison for quite some time. I th- I th- people might, mightn't quite realise, but, you know, uh, prisoners in, in, in the likes of Lock and House and Shelton Abbey and Wicklow are free to pretty much go into the, the local town. A lot, a lot of them will have jobs in the area. There's a similar arrangement with Harristown House then, which is just outside um, Castle Ree Prison as well, where you have... You know, at one stage, you had something like a dozen lifers, you know, people who'd served time for, for various murders were out doing things like working in a local garden centre, repairing lawnmowers or going to courses and this kind of thing. So, it, like, in that sense, it's not unusual. And I guess if somebody has kept their nose clean and played by the rules, they're entitled then to, to go to somewhere like Lock and House. But, I mean, it's just, as you say, it kind of a, it's a little bit uh, worrying to think that the likes of Mangan, who, as it turns out then, while he was in Lock and House, was taking full advantage to what it looks like, get back into the, the drugs business or certainly getting back into the, the business of gangland. And that was our colleague, uh, Pat O'Connell, who broke that story uh, about Mangan's uh, escape. I put escape in, uh, you know, in inverted commas because, I mean, he simply just walked out. 
But it was all down to the fact that he had been sending threatening messages to a person in North County, Dublin, demanding cash. He was looking for €12,000 and he was threatening to to leave the prison and to burn this family out of the home if he didn't get the money. Uh, And I think this this person then, I mean, he told Pat that, like, he was the one who reported it to the IPS, to the Irish Prison Service, and said, look, I'm being threatened by one of your people. And they raided his, his room and found the, they found the, the smoking gun, so to speak, the, the mobile phone with all the threatening messages on it. Now, this man is in North County Dublin and it was his son that Mangan was claiming owed money, 12,000, for drugs. So somebody has obviously supplied these so-called drugs, even though this gentleman says that his son doesn't owe any money, doesn't even know who Mangan is, um, etc. Now, is Mangan allowed, firstly, and before we come on to his escape, is he allowed a, pris- a phone in prison, an 089 burner mobile phone? Uh, to be honest, I, I don't think they are. I think, I think in certain circumstances, uh, they can apply to a governor for permission to have a phone, as far as I understand it, but I'm not entirely sure. So whether this phone was within the rules or not remains to be seen. Somehow I doubt it. Um, it, it's usually it's usually pretty tight on these things for the simple reason that, uh, you know, I mean, it's the very basics of, of threatening people that were involved in having them locked up in the first place. And I mean, there's examples of that, you know, down through the years. I mean, Michael Murray, the, the, the that, you know, the rapist doing a long, a long stretch. He was using smuggled mobile phones in Portlaoise prison to harass the state solicitor who put him behind bars. Uh, you know, so I mean, uh, that's a, that's a, you know, just at one level. I mean, but then of course you, you see in the case of like the likes of Mangan, where they're actually, you know, th- you know, threatening, you know, violence, and even uh, ac- according to the, the the person who was at the at the brunt of these threats, even directed somebody to call to his house looking for the money. So I mean, it it is quite a serious thing. Oh, no doubt. I mean, we're fairly clear that in the ordinary prison system, they are not allowed mobile phones and there are plenty of contraband mobile phones that get in. And we have, as you say, plenty of examples of uh, prisoners using them sometimes to conduct their business, their their ongoing drug businesses or whatever. But in this lock and house situation and other lower grade prisons where they're on their way out, basically, and they're trusted, they do seem to be allowed to have access to the Internet bit of a grey area is it yeah i mean some of them uh, you know you know work for firms i mean we've done stories before about you know guys getting picked up at six o'clock in the morning to go work for you know a construction firm or whatever whether it's shelton abbey or lock and house you know guys working in restaurants that sort of thing so presumably they do have mobile phones because they're going to have to ring in to the boss if they're sick or if you know the boss needs to contact them to ask them to come in and do an extra shift on sunday you know no more than any other person and and and, and i suppose the whole idea is that these People serving time at this point, you know, they've now done their time. They've proven the no, you know, during their time in a, in a medium security or a high security prison, they've shown that they're not a threat to the outside world anymore. That they're they're not active in crime and they're not causing any problems. So presumably, Mangan had a clean record, and that's why he was in lock and house. So to some extent, it was unexpected for him to suddenly break bad like this and just. You know, certain, you know, to all intents and purposes, you know, suddenly get involved in this sort of uh, behaviour. Now, of course, who's to say that he wasn't involved in that all along and just was never caught and was good at playing the game? Mm. Now, he they come and search his cell and at this point he makes a decision. And this is, we're talking two weeks ago here. He makes a decision that he ain't hanging around for the 10 years in prison that he's likely to be facing from threatening people from his mobile phone in the prison system. So he's gone by the time they come back looking for him. 
Yeah, and I think that the the person who, who who spoke to Pat O'Connell about this, like kind of, I think expressed his annoyance that, you know, to to some extent he he'd taken the step of the risky step, I guess, of of re- reporting this or tipping off the Irish Prison Service to let him know that him and his family were being threatened, and then uh, you know, I, and he claims like you know that 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 where after. Mangan's room was searched that they they basically went off at the phone and left him there. So he had the opportunity then to basically walk out the gate uh, and wondered why, like, he wasn't taken into custody. But I guess these things have to be, you know, investigated properly. I'm sure there's a procedure or whatever, but you do imagine that, uh, you know, it might, it might have been handled a little bit better. I mean, certainly certainly in a, somebody with his pedigree coming from, you know, the sort of the sort of offences he was convicted for and the reason why he was, he was serving time. And, and plus, I mean... Like he, he he was done for drugs and weapons possession, but among his previous convictions are, as well are demanding money with menaces. So you know it it is a he is a person that has a record for you know intimidation and threats. Now it's the parole board who make the decisions to send individuals prisoners to these open prisons. At a point in time, they believe that they have assessed the situation and they believe they're of no risk to anybody. Um, Mangan's staying in Lock and House or, or his, his incarceration in Lock and House was a surprise to me in the same way as somebody I was writing about recently, Brian Kenny, um, who is at the centre of the podcast we made, The Witness. And that tells the story of Joseph O'Callaghan, a young boy who was groomed into a drug gang by Kenny as a young boy and who goes on to give evidence against Kenny and his cohort, Thomas Hinchin, when they murder um a, a, a young man, Jonathan O'Reilly, outside Cloverhill Prison. Now, Kenny has been in the prison system. He was sentenced to life in prison and convicted of murder and was moved um, in the last year and a half to Lock and House. Again, a parole board saw fit to move him to that open prison, despite the fact that Joseph O'Callaghan remains under threat from him uh, and has been issued with two Garda information messages uh, in recent years, to state that his life is under threat because of the evidence he gave to the courts. So it's another baffling sort of a, a, a situation where somebody like Kenny is is moved to this open prison. And incidentally, Kenny and Mangan know each other well. I mean, both of them hail from Marlowe Highlands days. And we'll go into that now. We'll just talk about Mangan's background, really, and, and who he was and how he came up the criminal ladder, but, you know, it's just, it's an interesting um, thing to point out that, you know, Kenny and Mangan are long-term associates and they both end up together in Lock and House and Mangan is now on the run, clearly hoping to make some money from whatever it is he's going to do. But let's just go back to, um, I suppose, really, the late 1990s and the early 2000s. And the biggest name in Dublin in the criminal underworld was Martin Marlowe Highland. And he ran Finglas um, through threats and through intimidation. He was involved in all sorts of criminality, but ultimately he was the biggest supplier of drugs. And he had a group around him known, I think, as the Filthy 50, who he used and um, intimidated anybody who owed him money. He was a very scary character. And at the heart of his organisation was Johnny Mangan. That there was a number of gangs operating in in sort of the northern part of the county that were considered quite serious. There was there was various uh, you know robbery gangs. I mean, like Highlands gang as well was like you know they were into heists and all the rest. 
And Operation Oak was launched on the basis of that. But within a, apparently within a short couple of weeks, they realized that Highlands Gang was on a whole different level and it needed a completely separate operation. Uh, you know, such was the threat that they posed to society at the time. I mean, they were really considered, you know, an extremely dangerous bunch that were, you know, you know, possibly, you know, well, not possibly, but they were able to challenge sort of the the, the state to some extent in, in some of the areas that they controlled. Uh, and so they went after them. And I think in 2006, they had something like, uh, I think it was 20 plus conviction, serious conviction against members of the gang. They had seized something like 2 million euro worth of drugs. So again, it's another example of, you know, when they actually target some of these gangs, they can get a lot of results very quickly. Now, it was at this time, like despite all the attention they were getting, it was still a very bloody year in 2006. There was uh, Patrick Hart, who would have been part of, uh, of, I suppose, the Filthy 50, uh, kind of went out on his own. So he was murdered, presumably, by the gang. There was Paul Ray, a drug dealer from County Louth, was killed by the gang. Biba Saluta, who was shot dead as part of a contract killing, there was members of, of Highlands Gang again, were, were supposed to, you know, are, are, are known to have been involved in that, in, in that setup. And Eamon, she was a mother of two, and her death to this day stands out as one of the most horrific and significant in gangland history. She was uh, two young children, and she was standing in her doorway having a cigarette and she was shot dead. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, it, it, that, that, I mean that's a, it's, it's worthy of a, a, lot, a lot of uh, attention. And so the theory is, is that, you know, not just Marla Highlands gang, not just the Limerick gangs, but you have a whole range of various people involved in that kind of underground network at different points where, where you know, contacts were, were, were touched, you know, were, were hit up. But that's kind of beside the point. I mean, if you go back to if you go yeah. back to 2006, that's when Marla Highland then himself was killed, and of course, unfortunately, the the innocent young plumber Anthony Campbell was shot dead because it was thought that uh, he, he might have recognised the killers. Yeah, and that itself was a murder following on from Bible Salute. That just some of these murders. It's not to claim one life is more important than another, and we will always state that. But just some of them really bring home the realities of gangland crime, and that. December 2006, when Anthony Campbell was out as an apprentice plumber and he was fixing a radiator in a house that Martin Marlow Highland was staying in, he literally was killed in case he might be able to give evidence later later on. And of course, at the time, Mangan and his cohort, uh, William Hines, had already been caught just months previous uh, at Brown's Barn outside... Uh, outside Dublin, with two million quids worth of cannabis. They were on bail for other serious charges when they were caught with that. Because Operation Oak had resulted in such a crackdown on Marlow Highland's wider circle, that paranoia that always starts up was existing. You know, it was very, very strong at the time. Some people would have blamed Marlow for touting um, and for giving up those drugs. There was all sorts of allegations and accusations, similar to what we see in the run-up to the Kinnahan Hutch feud, all this is going on in the background. So when those that guard attention does come down on, on gangs, it, it can cause them almost to implode. And there was no doubt when Highland was killed that time that it was probably his own that had taken him out. I mean, Highland himself came to prominence because it's suspected he took out his former boss, PJ Psycho Judge, as he was known. Um, and... Highland, it was suspected, was killed by on the orders of his then underling, 
Eamon the Don Dunn. However, Mangan and Hines were arrested and questioned in connection with Highland's murder. Now, they weren't charged, either of them, um, and they were subsequently given that lengthy prison sentence that Mangan is currently supposed to be still serving for the guns and drugs found um, at Brown's Barn. But in 2012, Mangan was named as the hitman for the Marlowe Highland assassination. Yeah, that, that was an interesting case. That was uh, Joseph Warren was being prosecuted for, uh, there was a, an attempt to rob a job security van at uh, the Tesco's in Selbridge in November, uh, I think it was t- 2007. And Eamon the Don Dunn was, was also one of those who, who was facing charges on that. Now, in, in his case, they actually called our former colleague Paul Williams uh, to court because he had written a number of stories about the Don without necessarily naming him. And obviously, uh, Warren's defence wanted to be able to show that, you know, he was acting under fear, like this is a really dangerous criminal. Eamon, you know, Eamon Dunn was, you know, not a man to be trifled with and he had no choice to, to, to go forward. So in, the, in that case then, it was heard in court how how uh, that that it was Mangan and and Hines had uh, carried out the murder, and that Eamon Dunn was the, the was the getaway driver. So that's how close Mangan and you know was to the the top of the tree. Uh, and of course, you know Mangan, like uh, you can argue, must have had his own suspicions, like his own um, motivation going on there. Because I mean, like the the. the the three the three reasons he he was in prison up until he walked out there two weeks ago uh, was one of them was was the 198 slabs of cannabis he was caught with in Drumcondra in February 2006, and that was as the guards are called an intelligence led operation. So he was under surveillance. He was caught red handed, and then in July again with the with the 340 I think sorry 354 kilos of cannabis. Again, it was an intelligence-led operation. He was under surveillance. They were seen transferring, you know, a black hold all from a car from a car to a van. And he, he, he was caught again. And then when he was caught with the gun in August uh, 2007, again, it was an, a tip-off to the guards. He was sitting in a pub and he was found then in the bathroom with the with the bullets, you know, in the waistband and, and the, the Luger pistol. So you can see how, you know, the guard of pressure, whether or not it came from electronic surveillance or people touting, but I mean, it would have caused a huge amount of paranoia in, in a gang like that. So You're essentially saying he was right to be paranoid because three times he was lifted from surveillance operations. The, yeah. Somebody had to know exactly what he was doing and yeah, where, yeah. yeah. Sometimes, you know, they um, are out to get you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I mean, we're going through this really just, I suppose, to highlight what a significant player Mangan has been in gangland crime, um, how serious the offences he's been convicted of but also how serious the, inf- the offences that he has been suspected of because he was never charged in relation to Marlowe Highland's murder. I mean, is that murder investigation still even open? We don't know. You don't hear about an awful lot of these gangland murders are never solved. But no, nonetheless, he was questioned about it and um, he, as was said in court in 2012, is the suspected trigger man. And this is a guy who is now out there somewhere We've no idea where. And uh, Lock and House Prison send an email to somebody that he's been threatening from within the prison service and tell them, oh, by the way, he absconded. Yeah, and we'll let you know if we get him back. And, and in the meantime, if you have any concerns about your safety, you know, contact your local Garda station. I mean, unfortunately, that's that's the fact of life. I mean, like our, our 
like Pat O'Connell and Ken Foy, like since reported that there was a, a, an eyewitness report of him being picked up by a car near Dublin Port, and the suggestion is that he's already gone to the UK, which means that it, there was an element of uh, he was trying to get out whatever money he he was owed left and get out of the country. So, with, with a bit of luck, we won't necessarily like uh, turn up in Ireland, like you know, as a free man. That uh, if he does turn up here again, it'll be after being extradited back from somewhere like the UK or Spain. But that is nonetheless an eyewitness report from 2 a.m. in the morning from somebody who was walking their dog who believes that she saw the man who she saw a photograph of in a newspaper. So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, ID witnesses, kind of an, an identification like that of a photograph, as, as we know, is, is it's always precarious because, I mean, you can be absolutely convinced you've seen somebody and it's exactly the same person in the photograph. And then when you see the actual person, you go, oh, God, how did I make that mistake? And it's so easily done. And it doesn't mean that the, the witness isn't well motivated or telling the truth. But it's, it is simply, it's just simply very difficult and can be, it can be unreliable. Yes, it certainly can. It wouldn't be exactly the safest ID process that way. If somebody knows an individual and knows them to see, it's a completely different story. But um, So what happens now? And uh, also... Two other people got out of Lock and House in the meantime. Yeah, yeah, there, there was, there was, there was, um, I think there was um, a guy doing time for drugs from Bullangar and, and a Cork prisoner as well. But both of them have since been, um, I suppose, retrieved or they've been brought back to the prison system since then. So I imagine that that's the end of their open prison. And look, you know, we believe in the rehabilitation of prisoners and um, we believe that we need to offer offenders within the prison system, the ability to reform and to become decent, you know, civilians again. And and we are, the whole prison system is based on the fact that you're trying to give people an education, a bit of a civic spirit, and that they are welcomed back into the community as, you know, a reformed character. So not to knock what the likes of Lock and House are doing, because they are doing good work when you have prisoners that are you know, maybe who have apologised for their crimes, who have been through rehabilitation for whatever addictions they may have. And there's really good success stories out there of people who've gone into the prison system and come out really valuable human beings who are giving back into the communities. Um, But it's hard to imagine the likes of these guys being in that situation the likes of Mangan, and I mentioned him already, but Brian Kenny, who has never apologised for his crime or admitted to his crime. And they're in a situation where they're pretty much free to come and go, aren't they? No, they are. I mean, th- there are certain rules, but I mean, but, you know, to all intents and purposes, compared to, a, you, know, a, you know, a closed prison, they are. They're free to come and go. They can go to the shops. They can go for a cup of tea. They can... You know, they. I mean, it's it's probably against the rules, all right, to travel certain areas. But who, how's anyone going to know unless they get caught? Like you know, and once they're back in time, it, it's it's no big deal. But I mean, it is. I think it's important. Like you know, when you mention about like you know the rehabilitation and and kind of giving that light at the end of the tunnel is important. I mean, there's so many prisoners are are, are in prison who, to some extent, were you know, victims of their own circumstances through whatever reason, through, you know, a, you know, a tough childhood. I mean, there's plenty of people who have tough childhoods don't end up in prison and, you know, don't need it. But some people do, you know, they, they haven't got the, the I guess, emotional resources to, to be able to figure out, you know, how not to be permanently addicted to drugs or drink, you know, you know, who make a long 
series of bad decisions one after another and getting into prison sometimes is the only time that they actually have a bit of stability in their life it's the only time when they get three square meals a day when you know they they get to meet a music teacher or an english teacher or you know get to do a bit of woodwork or planting gardens or whatever it is and and they kind of get to see you know how uh, there is an alternative to the chaotic life on the outside but like to compare prisoners like that with gangland criminals you know with the likes of say brian ratigan who's now out you know, or or Brian Kenny, in, in you know, there's no comparison between you know the vast majority of prisoners who are in the prison system and you know active gangland criminals like you know, like Johnny Mangan. I mean, it's just you know there really has to be a two tier system where you know they are separated and generally they have been. I mean, like an, it, it is an anomaly, I think, that the likes of Johnny Mangan and even Brian Kenny. We're, we're, you know, we're allowed into into open prisons, and it, it's I'm sure it's a it's an area of concern. I think that should be addressed, and and you know maybe Johnny Mangan's done us all a favor in that regard, and that they're going to have to kind of relook at these things, and that you know just because somebody you know when they're coming from a professional criminal gangland background, just because they're able to play the game doesn't mean that they're they're allowed in then to the to the open prison system. Because don't forget that's going to put other prisoners at risk as well. I mean, apart from people on the outside, the, you know, like you're talking about the vulnerable, like people who've made all the bad decisions all their life, and you have you have a hardened, you know, gangster arriving into a place like that. These guys are going to be, you know, it, it's going to be put in front of them another bad decision. It's, it's right here, ready for you to make anytime you want to help me. You know, that has to be taken into account. And it's not every gangland criminal that gets to come out of the prison system in such a gentle fashion through these open prisons. It's the parole boards that make these decisions. And I know there is a change coming or has either just come in that the Minister for Justice would have had to sign off a parole board decision, but they will no longer have to do that. So it'll just be the parole board. Now, presumably they are taking, you know, interviews from the prison service and they're being told how the prisoner behaves. They're also interviewing the prisoner and they're also taking on board letters from victims who can write to the parole board and object to to these things, but do you know much about the parole board, who they are and what their backgrounds are and, you know, who, who are these people and who are they accountable to maybe, Eamon? Who are they, who are they accountable to? Is it the parole board uh, that should be accountable for this Johnny Mangan situation or is it the prison service? Like, it's a, it's a controversy that comes up, you know, on a regular basis. I mean, there, there was one of the rules there, uh, I think, where somebody serving a life sentence for murder was entitled to apply for parole after seven years in you know and then of course the the victim's family would be contacted so within seven years they're being told oh he's you know he's looking for a parole and that's that's the way victims families would see it now the chances of them getting parole after seven years is, is virtually nil and i mean and even even up to a couple of years ago like the earliest it would be was 12 years and that's that's actually increasing it's i think the average now is something like 18 years like it's 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 it has it has gotten tougher in that regard but uh I, I suppose the fact that it, I know in the states that parole board hearings are like district court hearings. You can go and report on them, and you can go and hear the evidence, you know, given to the the, the uh, parole board. And maybe we need a system like that where it's done quite transparently, rather than having, you know, you know, well-meaning and probably well-qualified people, you know, discussing a case, but doing it behind closed doors. I mean, we all know that if you're if decisions you're making are going to be held up to public scrutiny, you're going to take a lot more time and be a lot more careful and you're going to weigh things in a way that you mightn't if you're, if you're able to make a decision behind closed doors where you're not, you know, it's not as easy to, to, 
to, to keep you accountable. Yeah, and I suppose, look, we have to say for the parole board that a lot of these criminals can be very manipulative people. And, you know, they're by their very nature, they get away with things. They By their very nature, they can lie and they can put themselves forward as a very different person to the person they are. But um, just an extraordinary story anyway on Johnny Mangan. And it'd be interesting to see where he does show up. We don't know for sure he's gone to the UK. We don't know for sure if he's in Dublin. There is a possibility he's been hit out in Dublin. But if anybody knows where he is, maybe give Eamon a ring, eh? <laughs> well, you can always just call the Sunday World. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Eamon Dillon, thank you very much. Thanks, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.